Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Our guest today is Carl Wozen, co-founder and chief business officer at Yoko, South Africa's leading payments platform for small businesses offering a convenient way to accept car payments in person or online. Founded in 2012, the company serves over 100,000 small businesses and has received multiple rounds of investment from industry leaders like Buona, Partech, Greyhound Capital, FMO, and many more. We covered a wide range of topics, including Carl's background and his entrepreneurial journey in Cape Town as an immigrant outsider, stories on the early days of Yoko and how they took the company from zero to one, the importance of company culture in a fast-moving fintech space, navigating COVID and Yoko's meaningful role in helping small businesses during the pandemic, the state of the fintech industry in South Africa and the rest of the continent, entrepreneurial advice, and a lot more. I had a lot of fun talking to Carl, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Well, Carl, thank you for joining us on the Wharton Fintech Podcast. Welcome all the way from South Africa, I imagine. Where are you joining us from? Cape Town. Very nice. Very nice. How's everything down there these days? Yeah, good. Well, first, thanks for having me. It's uh, an honor. I'm a big fan of the podcast. Yeah, things in Cape Town are nice. It's summer, so uh, we're enjoying uh, some warm weather and, and, and we're out of lockdown. So for a brief moment, life is kind of normal. Good to know. Good to know, man. It's, yeah. a, it's a little bit cold here in the East Coast of the U.S. Yeah, so I hear. <laughs> yeah. So, Carl, let's get started maybe by hearing a bit about your personal background, right? We'll, we'll love to find out, you know, the road that eventually took you to South Africa, to Cape Town, because you're not originally from there. Yeah, that, no, that's right. I was born in, in London to Lebanese parents. And we moved to Lebanon when I was six years old, after the civil war ended, you know, which was a massive culture shock, moving from central London to post-war Beirut. But we made it happen. I grew up in an entrepreneurial household. So both my parents were entrepreneurs. They were architects, but ended up starting their own businesses and their parents before them. So I grew up within that culture. And I got to watch them build businesses from scratch, which you know really had a profound effect on me in hindsight. They really normalized that journey for me. And, and I knew that I'd go on to build my own business at some point. But I wasn't really interested in any business pursuits as a child or during university. I wanted to be a musician. I was a drummer and sort of still am. But yeah, I quickly snapped out of that one to the relief of my parents and went to work at Citigroup in Dubai in their investment banking team. So I spent a year there. Didn't particularly like working for a big bank. So I moved to management consulting and joined a, a young firm called the Delta Partners, which was advising telecom operators in the Middle East and Africa. So this was about 2006. And during that time, uh, mobile penetration in Africa was about just around 15%, if I recall. So low-cost feature phones had really just started to take off. And it was a really exciting time. I got to work on you know, about 15 M&A transactions, a couple of IPOs, and helped to set up some operators from scratch right across the region, which was super fun and interesting. But I, I think the key thing here is, is that I managed to see how an entire market could get created when nobody thought was possible. So, I mean, I don't know if you remember or if you've read um, that back then projections for how many Africans would eventually adopt uh, mobile or internet, analysts would say, you know, that would be maximum 20, 25%. 
in the long term, which you know, obviously didn't turn out to be true. But at the time, that's what people thought. So it was really eye-opening to see a massive business, which was, you know, in that case, mobile telecoms, be built or get adopted uh, by previously underserved non-consumers, if you want to call them, who are only able to afford $2 per month or so in terms of revenue per user. So it really opened our eyes to what an attractive market could actually really look like in a market, in a country with lots of inequality. And that it, it taught us that, you know, if you can really get it right, you can not only build a very successful and sustainable business, but you can also transform entire communities. And that was very exciting. And that concept or theme of market creation, turning non-consumers into consumers resonated. And it was you know, very, very inspiring for us. You know, Myself and my co-founder, we actually both worked in the same firm and a few years later decided to branch out and uh, you know, build you know, our own venture out of, out of Cape Town, South Africa, but very much inspired by our experience in mobile telecoms, but you know, in another industry. Now, w- one thing that comes to mind, you're not the first founder that we've interviewed that is, is an outsider, right? Because you're coming in from a different perspective. And this has to have advantages and disadvantages, right? How would you describe that dynamic of coming into a new market with a fresh point of view? Yeah, for sure. I think you're right. And there's definitely that duality. And if I think back to what ended up getting us started into Yoko, the team came before the idea, right? So that was not typical. And the purpose came before the team. So our purpose is enabling people to thrive. And we kind of all shared it. We were four friends and none of us came from the payments industry. We each had different backgrounds. Lungis, our CTO, come from, had, had just exited his startup. Uh, Bradley and Katlejo, ex-management consultants, had just come back from Legos after a short stint uh, with Rocket Internet where they were building what now became Jumia, which is a big African e-commerce company. Uh, but I think to answer your question after this background, obviously you come with a fresh perspective to the problem. And I think payments in particular had been suffering from that lack of perspective. And banking, especially in South Africa, was there was high banking penetration. But on the payment side, it was very, very limited to your big businesses and corporates, despite over 80% banking penetration on the consumer side. So that problem of lack of access was something that fascinated us. And we you know, really tried to unpack what it was that was causing it. And I think had we come from a typical banking background, we would have probably gone with the pervading wisdom that small businesses are risky, right? Or that this is just a segment that we can't serve sustainably because they're tiny and fragmented and they're not economical. But because we came from the mobile telecom space, we realized, you know what? Those businesses aren't completely different. Like you actually have, you know, you need to get vetted. uh, You need to get a piece of hardware um, and then you need to also just, there needs to be churn management down the line and, of course, a little bit of you know, risk management. So, you know, with that kind of perspective, Katlejo and I came from the mobile space. Lungi was, uh, you know, a software entrepreneur. And Bradley came from an actuarial space. We tackled that problem very differently. And I think that's what got ultimately the bank that we partnered with excited to work with us because we redesigned it from first principles, from the, from the ground up. Whereas if we had come from the existing industry, we would have probably brought the same kind of mindset to the problem, which would not have changed anything. Now, Carl, the reason why we like to have co-founders here is one of the reasons, I guess, is because you can tell us about the journey from day zero. And specifically, we love to hear about 
how you approached building, setting up the first bricks of the company and you know, how did you manage talent, operations, and, and all that. T- take us to the, to the initial days. Yeah, of course. So maybe just quickly about like, what the problem that we were facing in the industry. So I did mention that gap in the market. So South Africa is a 60 million plus uh, population market, over 80% banking penetration. So lots of cards in the market. But on the acceptance side, very different story. So there was just under 6% of businesses in South Africa who actually could accept cards. And that's what I was talking about, the access piece. So part of the problem was the expensive traditional terminals and, and all that. But the other part was that the whole onboarding process was designed for your affluent or large business. So we really brought that kind of customer journey thinking to the equation and promised that we were going to make it as easy to get a car machine as it was to just buy something like a cell phone from a shop or on a website and just start transacting the same day or the next day. And you know that gap we quantified to be roughly at the time $50 billion in TPV, so total process volume per annum. That's the addressable market, but we've now revised that number up to over 100 billion. And because you know we really you know now understand the market a lot better, and that gave us a lot of conviction, and we really got started. So the components to this business, we we realized that there are two ways to get started, and this is a bit unique, I guess, to our industry. But we had to get a license to operate, and I mean, I, I guess a lot of fintechs need that too. And there were two routes. So either we become an ISO, which means we're effectively a reseller of the bank. And we basically just a channel for them. And that was the easy route and the quick route. Or you become an aggregator, which meant you contracted directly with the merchant and had a lot more space to innovate, uh, but you took on the risk and it's a much harder route. We needed to become an aggregator and we literally had to spend the entire year, that year, getting that license. And uh, yeah, I just, I think there was a lot of conviction from our side. So even though it was a very binary outcome, we, there was only one bank willing to bet on us. And even they had like a super long list of stuff that we needed to do. And uh, it was a challenging year, quite academic, actually, because we had to you know, do some deep foundational work and almost design the whole business before actually building it, which is counter a lot of the typical advice that you give to entrepreneurs. But we didn't feel like we had a choice. And in hindsight, we really believe that that's what got us to do some you know, really deep thinking and gather some insights from the market. So this license was unheard of, and we weren't from the payment space, and this is one of the disadvantages is that you really need to prove yourself. But at the same time, we did have an edge because people saw us as potentially bringing innovation. So once we got that license, and that was you know, after 2013, we started to raise the, a bit of seed capital and started to build the platform and the product. So it was a lot of plumbing back then. We really had to get all the integrations and certifications done, the schemes, etc. And I think we... Really, as a team, we were quite, I guess that's kind of how we work, is that we liked to go pretty deep and build foundations from an early time. And I think that's, that's probably one you know, advice I give to a lot of financial services entrepreneurs or fintech entrepreneurs that you really want to focus on compounding foundations over quick wins. And it's been easy to say that as someone who's you know, a few years down the journey with, with a scaled business. But at the time, it's obviously hard, but we are still relying today on the same risk systems that we built in 2014. I don't know, it doesn't sound too reassuring, but they were that good. The same customer journey. We went deep into some branding work, which today is still being used. So I think you want to spend time investing in foundations. And because we the timelines were long, like we had to build, like I said, a lot of plumbing and licenses and stuff, we had the opportunity to really do that. In 2015, 
is the first time we actually went live. And bear in mind, this just means that two years into the business, we're now doing our first live transaction with a customer. So you know, we were pretty exhausted. We feel like we've been doing this for two years, but the market and everyone else, we've just appeared. And so it was an interesting, I guess, slight dislocation there. But uh, we went live with a beta product, which was a Bluetooth card machine, an app, really simple pricing. So no monthly fees. You pay once off for this card machine. You get it delivered to your door the next day, you buy it on our website. And it was a big change from what was out there. Right? So the first customers really liked it. And you know, first customers we recruited through our networks. But we chose to stay in stealth until we felt like our systems and our processes could truly scale. So meaning in our, in our case, because the type of customer we wanted to serve was very small, we needed to make sure that we didn't need any human intervention to actually grow and reach and serve those customers. So that was the goal. And you know, it was a difficult decision to stay quiet and in stealth when we were seeing banks and competitors launching similar offerings. You know, there was, if you remember, but that was a craze back then. Like everyone was trying to do what Square was doing. But we knew that because we were managing money, like it would be a mistake to prematurely launch. And so we decided to be methodical and build trust through this, I guess, phased approach. So we went from build uh, from a product pilot where it was all about testing the experience and learning about how people are using the product, both the consumer and the merchant, because ultimately it's about the exchange. Once we got comfort there with a couple of 20, 30 merchants, we then moved into an operations pilot, uh, which was really about testing automation on all the ancillary parts of the journey. So can we actually distribute these card machines scale? Can we support our merchants at scale? Can we do our risk management and onboarding at scale? And then a few months of that, we moved into commercial pilot. We tested the segments and the channels, et cetera. So every stage had a bunch of things that we needed to learn and improve in a very hands-on way. So I actually remember us doing support as founders and, and actually everyone in the team. So we kind of had a, a roster and I remember many Friday nights where I'd cancel my plans and because I'm on support. And I'd be you know, sitting there explaining to a merchant how to pair their card machine or how to do a refund. And in hindsight, I think that obsession that we had about giving our merchants the best experience proactively truly helped us build our brand in the market. So I think that's just common for you know, most businesses. But you know, really, really get to that experience right, especially if you're in financial services. So end of that year, we felt confident to go to the public. We had 500 merchants, which now is obviously tiny. We, we add those in a, in a day now. But it was enough, I guess, to say, look, this is us and this is our brand, etc. And then very quickly, as it happens, we realized that it's all good having a nice product and experience, but we need the volume. And that's like is that transition that happens when you realize that you have to you know, move from being a product company to a distribution company. And it's a fundamentally different mindset. So we're very engineering and product driven. And then because this is a kind of B2B, so to speak, and, and you need to build a strong brand and stuff, we had to become very commercially oriented very quickly. And that was a tough year like, because we didn't really know how to scale this. Like This isn't the kind of product where it wasn't free. So it wasn't like Square where all of a sudden everyone's picking up free card machines, like you had to really like capture the right segments and communicate it properly and find the right channels that could scale. So we almost lost our way. At some point, we started to go up market uh, because they were more predictable and they were you know, closer to us. But that didn't result in the outcomes that we wanted. We weren't growing as fast. We were not able to raise money. I think that year we had about, on average, 2015, we had about 60 days of runway at any given moment. And we were a team of like 25, 30 people. So it was a really scary time. But we took a big step back 
and you can call this a pivot. It's not a pivot. I think it's going back to our roots and really, really asked ourselves whether we were being true to what we started out, out wanting to do, which was to focus on the merchants who had never accepted card before, right? They were out there. We just needed to build distribution to get them. And ultimately, after many experiments and I guess a bit of luck, look, we found the right growth formula. So we understood the levers, the channels, the economics. And by that end of 2016, we had built a pretty slick business. So we grew from 500 to 5,000 merchants that year. And we're able to raise our Series A from you know, international VCs. And since then, we've been more than doubling year on year. Today, we've got over 100,000 small businesses, and, and we're still scratching the surface. Ah, really fascinating stuff. And you bring out a truth that is universal across several fintechs, which is the bar for the MVP is that much higher than a social media network or, you exactly. know, or even an e-commerce startup. Well, let's talk a little bit about you know, your team. So your market right now is South Africa and South Africa only, right? Is your team also coming uniquely from South Africa? How have you approached recruiting? Yeah, it's a good question. At the beginning, we were all based in Cape Town. So, you know, we were lucky to have, so there's a small ecosystem here and some good talent. We were lucky to have ex-colleagues and friends who were crazy enough to jump in with us. But from the beginning, Yoko was trying to be a social experiment in which people could come to work and be 100% themselves and where they could play to their strengths most of the time. So I think that was a pretty radical idea at the time. And you know, despite us not paying the best salaries because we were tiny, it gave us some momentum early on. But I think since then, we've really managed to, I guess, institutionalize what it is that makes Yoko a great place to work. And you know, I'm happy to chat about that. But uh, I think the the real Right now, the team is primarily based in South Africa, but we've you know, transitioned to re- being remote first. We've got a, an office in the Netherlands with um, you know, a, an engineering team there that's building our platform. So they're essentially almost a separate entity that we'll be looking to you know, commercialize at some point as well to serve other payment companies. But they're very focused and they're based in the Netherlands. But we've got people everywhere now. Right? So our head of VP of product is based in London. Our head of product marketing is based in, in Egypt. Um, our you know, head of growth is based in Israel. So it's, it's really all over the place right now. And I guess that's one of the great advantages of uh, working remotely is that you can tap into talent and build a very global culture. And when you think about the offering, I mean, clearly you started with a mission. It sounds like you've expanded within that mission and you have obviously a number much larger than the initial client base that you had. But uh, have you also added some new products to the initial one, which was just credit card acceptance. Yeah, yeah, of course. It's been an interesting journey. So I'm telling you what we do now. So we offer, you know, offline and online payments for small businesses. So we've got a couple of different card machines. We let small businesses accept payments on their website via plugins or via an API, and also to send payment links and invoices and gift cards and all that. So that's payments. Uh, We've got a pilot going on with QR. So it's really about having all payment methods possible that are relevant. And that's really important. We also offer an entry-level software stack for our small businesses, which give them you know, access to tools to manage their inventory and point of sale and, and business intelligence and you know, staff management and a range of other things. And then we've got a lending product, which is you know, growing very fast, which is very much built on top of the payment rails and is there to you know, support our merchants by essentially predicting their cash flows and giving them uh, some growth capital around that. So, so those are the primary products at this point. We've got a bunch of other products that are you know, in earlier stages right now. 
And the idea really is to expand into an ecosystem of financial services. So, I mean, we're not the first guys doing this. We're lucky to have some really incredible companies in other markets that have successfully built financial ecosystems around small businesses. So this is Square, Pax Seguro in Brazil, and you know a range of others. And we've been very clear now on where this is going, but it comes down to payments ultimately, right? So I mean, payments is fundamentally the building block of GDP, and it's a much bigger market than people think. That's a very interesting one. And I think you're starting to see it now post-pandemic, how payment companies all of a sudden have become valued at you know these multiples is because I think everyone always underestimated the addressable market for payments. So as much as we're doing the stuff around payments, it's ultimately it's about payments. Yeah, we've uh, we've interviewed some of the payments players that you've mentioned and some of the public ones I would interview them, publish a month later and their market cap had already you know yeah, yeah. grown by so much. It's <laughs> it's a fast ecosystem. So I want to talk a little bit about the pandemic. You just mentioned it. I imagine it probably was a tough year, but also a year where you saw a lot of growth. Yeah. I think similar to most businesses that are exposed to in-person commerce, it was a pretty big shock because South Africa went through a very strict lockdown and we had to literally see our transactions drop by 80% overnight. And uh, obviously, that means our merchants weren't able to transact. And, you know, that continued for a few weeks. And, and we didn't know, like, how long that was going to go for. So, you know, we transitioned to remote like everyone else and realized that we had this responsibility, right, to help build the future for our customers and also to, you know, give them a way to trade during these exceptional circumstances. So luckily, we had built a couple of online payments products in the meantime, and we just released them much faster than we normally would have. And that gave people a way to stay afloat and to trade. They were very grateful. And that's a product that's continuing to grow right now. But I think what was really fascinating was once the wave was over, and it was a pretty harsh wave, but when it was over, the recovery was way faster than we expected. So, but we could not anticipate that. So what we did was we actually, we were getting so many questions from our merchants, like, how am I doing compared to my peers, compared to people in my geography? So we decided to just publish that data on our website. Oh, so we, wow. we launched something called the Recovery Monitor, Small Business Recovery Monitor, which is daily, it's basically a Tableau dashboard on our website, nicely designed and all that. And every day shows you for our three core industries, which are retail, hospitality, and health and beauty, how they were doing compared to first two weeks of March. And it was amazing, right? To see how the regulation would impact their transactions but also how that changed from one geography to another. And that became, it was quoted about 500 times in the press because there was no data on small businesses, right? This is a very neglected and unseen sector, but we had 100,000 of them transacting on our platform. So we were able to tell the narrative as it was. But the recovery itself, while not straightforward, at least from a digital standpoint, because that's what we see, was way faster than expected. And here, I mean, you've heard the story before, People are using less cash, and therefore more is being processed on digital payments. And part of it is online, so remote payments, but a big part of it as well is just people tapping more and not paying cash anymore. And obviously, we've been benefited from that, and we, we're seeing this trend continue. So that's been good for us. But we've also just seen the general resilience of the small to micro merchants. Yeah. Like, as bad as the economy is, you don't see these guys shut down, right? They just change. And that's amazing, right? Because they don't have these fixed costs and rent. And, and that's one of the beautiful things about these micro merchants. They don't stop because if they stop, there's no more money. So they just change. 
And that makes them so resilient and was really amazing to see. I think the whole pandemic has been a reminder of how adaptable and resilient yeah. humans can be, but particularly sure. uh, small entrepreneurs. I Absolutely. find fascinating what you just mentioned, this daily reports that you started publishing. I don't think we've heard that a lot. And, and this is real-time data, right? I imagine I mean, getting a... Oh, go so ahead. I can share the link. You can add the link in the show I notes. I will. Yeah, 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 yeah. And imagine that's getting quite a few eyeballs. Do you think you'll continue with some sort of angle of real-time data reporting? I think it was an exercise in radical transparency, which we thought we were doing, but we clearly weren't. And this was it, right? We were laying bare, basically telling the market that, look, this is it, right? We're not going to sugarcoat it and say, ah, oh, we're doing so well, right? Like we represent the economy and this is the economy. And I think we'll continue to just be very, very open about what's happening in that segment because that's, you need more awareness about that segment. And I don't know if daily is necessarily the best format, uh, but you know, just unfiltered, regular insight in an easily digestible way, I think is a very powerful narrative tool for the market. Carl, would love to hear your perspective of the current state of the fintech ecosystem, particularly the entrepreneurial space in the South African market. I mean, you've been there for half a decade, over half a decade at this point. I'm sure you've seen it evolve. You've seen it grow. Can you yeah. give us a, a, like a snapshot of what's going on today? Yeah, look, tons of potential, right? So if I think broader, so tech in general, I think South Africa is a strange market because you've seen a couple of outliers. So some real major international success stories over the past couple of decades that were actually born in South Africa, but made it more internationally. So for instance, Naspers, which is internet giant, very much South African company, started here in Cape Town. AWS was developed in South Africa by South African engineers. You know, WooCommerce, which is one of the biggest e-com platforms, was born here. And then you've got a bunch of cybersecurity companies. Luno, which is a big crypto exchange, um, is from here. Elon Musk, which I won't blame him. But those are, I see them as outliers, but I guess just a proof point for the talent and the potential that exists in this market. But what you'll find is that most of these guys have focused on uh, have succeeded primarily outside South Africa, but focusing primarily on what I call middle-class problems. What I haven't seen and I, what I don't truly see is a truly vibrant ecosystem where entrepreneurs are solving real challenges for Africans, like inequality, for instance, but that is changing, right? So there's a few companies doing interesting things and are starting to attract the right investors from you know international markets, but it's been relatively small scale so far. And it's only this year that you're starting to see $100 million plus rounds that can really move things. But still, they're, they're quite few and far between. I think it comes down to you know, having the quality investors that are long-term oriented and that can back the right companies that are solving for this topic of market creation. Um, I think in South Africa, you've got high bank penetration and the banks are pretty strong, which many people end up thinking, cool, so I'll just serve the banks. Right? That's kind of going to be my play because they're so strong. What they don't realize is that it's an industry that lacks competition. It's, and the majority of the population, which is a poor population, are super underbanked, right? paying really high fees and not getting good service and uh, ultimately using just a tiny percentage of what's actually uh, being built for them. So I think that the opportunity in financial services in this market is huge. 
but that kind of people don't see much past the big banks. And very often the goal of a fintech entrepreneur in South Africa is to sell to one of the big banks. So yeah, I'd love to see that narrative changing. Now, fascinating. So Carl, it's uh, definitely been a pleasure getting to know you and, and I hope we, we continue talking. So let's imagine you and I are talking in, in five years, right? What would you consider a resounding success? What kind of update would you like to give me by then of Yoko? Great question. As I mentioned before, the market size for payments is virtually limitless, right? It's GDP. And um, half of that GDP is small to micro business. So it's a completely underserved segment. And that's going to continue. And that's where we'll be. I think we expect to be running this business for decades to come. Okay? We're still really early in, in, in the beginning. In order to be in a position to continue running this business for so long, we want to be IPO ready by you know, 2024. And we want to be able to do that on a US exchange. So when it comes to like, I guess, geographic spread, we're talking deep in a few markets. So it's not about, you know, having a, this kind of like footprint across multiple markets. I don't think that model necessarily is the best when you're targeting small to micro businesses who don't benefit from you being in multiple markets. So it's about going deep in a couple of big markets, including South Africa, and really being market leaders in those markets and in the region, right? So I'm talking about Africa and the Middle East. You know, TPV of seven to ten billion dollars per year, and financial services ecosystem uh, that's serving you know millions of small businesses and eventually consumers as well. So yeah, that's kind of how we see it. And a great team, right? Super engaged, world class team. I'm excited for mm-hmm. the future. I'll, I'll be watching very very closely, Carl. And I know we're running out of time, but before we let you go, we'd love to hear you know maybe some reflections. And I know this whole episode is a lesson on entrepreneurship, but specifically for entrepreneurs in South Africa or a similar market, what advice would you like to share with uh, aspiring entrepreneurs? I do have one piece of advice that I like to give, and that is, especially if you're from this region, is focus on market creation. You have the privilege of being in a market where the majority of the population is still not consuming basic things. So turn those people into consumers and you'll build a massive business, but you'll also change lives. So don't do the easy thing, or at least the tempting thing, which is to go after the affluent or the middle class. You might come from that background as a tech founder, but that doesn't mean that's where the opportunity is. Love it. Love it. That's great advice. And I actually like, Carl, we have one last question, and that is about your hobbies. Are there any hobbies you'd love to share that you like outside of Yoko? Yeah, well, I did mention earlier that I am a drummer. I was going to turn professional. At university, I was kind of deciding, ah, oh, investment banking or drumming. I ended up going for investment banking, but I'm still very much passionate about drums. It's my blood. I know that one day I'll you know, do a few music projects. But yeah, I definitely say drumming is my hobby. Well, Carl, thank you again. I appreciate you stopping by. You are definitely now a friend of Wharton. And I know people will love to see you around campus in a post-COVID world. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. That was really great. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. 
We also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor, Rafael Ostria. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armaza.